the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks, Dr. Bill. Welcome to this week's show. And it is great to have you with us wherever you're listening. Special thanks to the Salem Media Network and for Matt, uh, our engineer on the other side of the glass. Uh, you know, this show is all about shining a bright light on gifted people who have done extraordinary, remarkable, inspiring, and encouraging things. And we have just that kind of man with us today. His name is Dr. Michael Harrison, and he's often referred to as the father of fetal surgery, which is quite a title. Dr. Harrison is Director Emeritus of the Fetal Treatment Center and Professor Emeritus of Surgery, Pediatrics, Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences out of the University of California, uh, San Francisco. He's also co-author of a textbook, The Unborn Patient, The Art and Science of Fetal Therapy, He's also the author of hundreds of journal articles. Now, a few weeks ago, we spoke with Dr. Vin Chung, whose uh, family escaped from Vietnam in the 1970s. And, uh, well, like Dr. Chung, Dr. Harrison also graduated from Harvard Medical School. So you know we're talking with the best of the best on this program. Dr. Harrison, it is great to have you with us today. Thank you. Um, Let me start with this, Dr. Harrison. You know, I always like to level set with our guests because I don't want to assume anything for people who are listening. Um, I want to get into your background and your growing up and all, but what is, how do you describe what fetal surgery is? Well, it's what it sounds like. And when we got started it uh, 50 years ago, it was out of necessity because we were, see, I'm a pediatric surgeon, so we were uh, working on uh, newborn babies who had conditions that in some cases could not be fixed. The, the babies died because the damage done to them was done before birth. And I thought at the time, wow, the only way we're ever going to help these babies is to deal with their problem before they're born. Hmm. Yeah. So okay. So that's that, how fetal surgery was born. Yeah. So that's back in the. I know that didn't, the first surgery you did was 1981. But let's go back um, to your childhood. You obviously didn't grow up. I think probably as a little kid thinking, I want to be a fetal uh, surgeon. <laughs> no. So what was what was what did you want to be when you? And tell us tell us a little bit about your childhood. There's no such thing. There was no such thing as a, a fetal surgeon or even fetal surgery when I was growing up. So I grew up in the in the uh, what was that small town of Vancouver, Washington. My dad was a a good old 
old-fashioned country doctor. Uh, and so uh, I, I grew up uh, being around but knowing nothing about medicine. Uh, and I was one of eight children, and we all uh, shared in a very wonderful, rich uh, family life. And we still do, I, uh, all my siblings. So where did you, where are you in the birth order of eight, eight children? I was the second. The second, um, okay. And, yeah. And, second, what, and, what, was, and what, what was life like in your, in your home? I mean, your dad is a doctor, so is he a, in and out of the house a lot, doing a lot of house calls? And, yeah, exactly. And he used to take uh, us kids when we were small with him on some of those house calls. And we'd sit in the car outside somebody's house where he would go in and take care of whatever the problem was. So I was there. Our family was four boys in a row and then four girls in a row. (laughs) Yeah. We had had a full table. Your your mom had her hands full, no doubt about that. So going on house calls with your dad, I mean, sitting in the car, but seeing your dad... Uh, that had to have influenced you a lot. Was that something, like, from a very young age, you thought, I want to do what my dad does? Not really. Uh, it, it did in a, in, a, in a very wonderful, profound, uh, and sort of behind-the-scenes way. But like every kid, uh, you know, we just wanted to play baseball and become an athlete and <laughs> just be useful. Right? Yeah, so you're... <laughs> You're 80 years old, is that right? Yes, correct. Okay, so you're 80. So who were your heroes growing up in the Pacific Northwest? Well, uh, my dad was one that I didn't know it at the time. Uh, my one. Uh, and then the rest of them were the usual <laughs> kids' heroes, baseball players and, and football players. That's what he had were you closer to your dad, or, or were you closer to your mom? I guess you're always closer to your mom, in the sense uh, that who you saw every day, that's who took care of you. That's who helped you solve problems. Yeah. But my dad was always more or less the silent hero. Mm. <laughs> he watched all, everybody admired him. Uh it was a neat guy. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, to have if everyone would be so blessed to grow up with a dad that they could admire and someone to emulate. So yep. you're growing up in the Pacific Northwest, but you go through high school. Uh, I think you were on the crew team. Is that right? Well, it, uh, I, there was no. Uh, this was a lot of time ago, so there was no crew that I knew of, even in. Uh, uh, you know, in our area, the Pacific Northwest, Portland, Oregon. So I grew up uh, going to a Jesuit high school uh, and played the usual things. But then when I went off to Yale, uh, which was a total radical move in those days, no one ever left our house or our area. Uh, so I got, when I hit Yale, um, I saw a crew for the first time. I've never seen it. I've never seen a boat. Uh, so I said, 
saw. I didn't say it. I just said, uh, responded to the folks there and said, well, yeah, I'll try it out. <laughs> so that's how I got into it. But then I liked it, and I rode all four years at Yale, and was uh, and the last year was the captain of the lightweight crew. So you mentioned leaving and going across the country to Yale for someone in that era was kind of unusual. Why did you do? Why did you do it? I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. But I. But it. But it's. Uh, it proved true after that too. I just like new challengers. So that was a real challenge: getting on a plane, an airplane, <laughs> and leaving Portland, Oregon. Um, was uh, was just going into the unknown. Yeah, I can imagine, and then a totally different kind of lifestyle in the in the from the northwest to the northeast. So you get Absolutely. you get to Yale, and are you thinking at this point, medicine is my future, or are you still not sure when you first go to undergrad? No, no, not at all. I never, I never thought that. I just sort of took one thing after another. <laughs> so. Uh, no, Yale was a it was a full time occupation in itself, and I loved it. Uh, it was it was yeah, <laughs> there was plenty to do at crew. Ah, yeah. Well, Yale is a wonderful school, and obviously a lot of famous alum there. I mean, right back to President Bush, I believe, right? First yeah. President Bush and yeah. played yeah. Ba- played baseball for them. Uh, so you you well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, so I sort of got into that uh, that world, which I knew nothing about when we got there. I was just like a country bumpkin. Uh, but uh, I liked the, the world of accomplishment and, and uh, accomplished people. So then when I when it came to the end of that four-year period, I had to just make up my mind what to do. And one of the things to do was to go back uh, to the idea that I could be like my dad and be a, a good old-fashioned country doctor in a small town and know everybody and, and take care of a lot of people. Mm. You know, you mentioned... And that, yeah. and I went off to Harvard with that idea. I, I didn't finish Harvard with that idea, but that's how it started. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the idea of going from Washington to Yale and then being around accomplished people. You know, we talk to our kids all the time about making sure that they choose their friends carefully because, you know, who you become tends to be who you hang around, right? And I'm sure you experienced a lot of that and um, established some really long-lasting friendships at at school. No question. Wonderful. So you decide, how do you decide then? I mean, that's a big jump to go from a country bumpkin to a Ivy League school, but then decide, I'm not just going to follow in my father's footsteps. I'm going to go to Harvard, of all places. What was behind that? Well, it, I think it was mostly that at, at the time we were all, you know, competitive young people. And so you just did the best you could do. And the best that I thought I could do when I was going to, and learning about that system and going to Yale was to take the next big step and uh, and go to Harvard. Um, and but, uh, but I didn't go there with the idea that I would be a fancy doctor. I went there with the idea that I just wanted to be a doctor hmm. uh, and take care of people. Uh, that changed completely when I was at Harvard. I mean, those were, 
behavior changes that happen. They didn't start out that way. We're, we're talking with Dr. Michael Harrison. He's the father of fetal surgery. Um, an amazing career. He's now 80 years old. I'm talking to him here in Colorado Springs. I believe, Dr. Harrison, you're out of California still. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay, San Francisco. So tell us what happened then at Harvard. So that's not what you, you didn't start to become a, a world famous doctor. Obviously, that's what you grew up to be. But how did you make, when did you make that leap? No, I, I, I just went to school and tried to survive, thinking I was the dumbest kid that <laughs> went there. And, you know, barely got through my exams. And But I worked really hard. And when I found out I liked it. And I liked working hard. And uh, at about that time, I also was incredibly lucky to uh, finish a five-year courtship uh, with my wife, now wife, uh, Gretchen, um, a good Portland, Oregon girl. Mm. And so we got married in the first year of medical school, and, and that kept me on straight and narrow. <laughs> ah, I bet. Yeah, that's a tough road to hoe by yourself. Nice to have a partner. So how did you meet your wife? Unbelievably, we met in high school. Uh, <laughs> in a, back in Washington. Back in Washington. She grew up in Portland, Oregon, so it was across the Columbia River. But I, And I went to this Jesuit high school there. And my older brother uh, was friends with uh, a great guy named Tim Anderson. And <laughs> one night when we were over there drinking beer being crazy uh, he forgot to pick me up when he went home did I go watch it it was a half an hour away and so because I had no place else to go or sleep uh, Tim offered to let me come back to his house and I slept on his floor in the sleeping bag and when I woke up the next morning I met Anderson family <laughs> and so that's his, his sister. Ah, I see. Okay. Well, that's... Okay, so you meet her, you get married, you're at medical school, you just want to get through it. You obviously do. You, you, you know, figure out a way to pass, and you get your degree, and then what happens? Uh, well, it's, it's all part of this pattern of always trying to do the next most competitive, hardest thing to do. Hmm. And the hardest thing I learned at medical school, that one of the hardest but most satisfying things you could do was to be a surgeon. Well, I never thought I would be a surgeon, but uh, I applied for and got uh, a surgical uh, internship at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which was the most competitive one in the country. Um, And so then that committed us to the next uh, seven years of training in surgery uh, in the Harvard system. Ah, okay. Well, man, you're dropping some good wisdom here, Dr. Harrison. I mean, we're talking about, for people who are just starting out or who are listening, I mean, a few things jump out at me already, which is hang around smart people, be careful who you spend time with, and then, I love this line you said, do the hardest, most competitive thing. I mean, that's a good formula for reaching your potential? Uh, well, I'll tell you, I get formula for working hard. Yeah. So you, you, you finish your 
uh, time there and um, the training you need. When do you make the big leap from uh, you know the traditional kind of medicine that you're being trained for to deciding and and I, I, the inspiration for deciding? I want to jump into this. I want to pioneer this new <laughs> field of fetal surgery. Well, yeah, so in, uh, surgical training is wonderful, but but uh, <laughs> hard. So, but uh, amazingly, the first year of surgical training, that is one year out of, of medical school and just married, I <clears throat> was on a rotation in pediatric surgery with a wonderful uh, old surgeon named Hardy Hendren. <clears throat> and he, and uh, one of the first cases I did with him, uh, we, we operated on a baby who had a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. As a whole, the diaphragm that Hardy fixed in a beautiful operation, and I was just amazed. I was a young neophyte, and I had to look after the kid afterwards. Well, the kid died, mm. uh, and, uh, and there was nothing we could do about it. And I was so naive and so uncultured that I said to Hardy, hey, this kid didn't die because of his operation. He died because his lung wasn't big enough. And it wasn't big enough because it didn't grow before birth because mm. all his guts were up in his chest. And Hardy, and I said, well, so the only way you're going to save this kid is to... Uh, get the lungs to grow before birth, and that is to do this operation before birth. Well, this <laughs> experienced wonderful old surgeon almost fell over. He said, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. <laughs> you cannot find on a baby before he's born. Yeah, no, no one ever <laughs> heard of that. No one ever heard of that. And, but I held on to that idea in the next seven years of training. And even devised experiments to see if it would make any sense. Mm. And, and then started, I just was uh, devoted to it. Um, and so I and so I chose to do my final training in pediatric surgery. And then I chose my pediatric surgery training uh, uh, in such a way that I could pursue this dream. <laughs> and no one would laugh too hard at me. So, yeah, uh, that's what I did. So, I, and and we, Gretchen and I knew we were always West Coast people. So after many many years on the East Coast in that training, um, then we returned to the West Coast, and the rest of it all rolled out. Yeah, this is this is the voice you're hearing is Doctor Doctor Michael Harrison. He's the father of fetal surgery, and uh, he's talking about the origins of the idea, the idea that you could do something, really do the impossible. People back then had never heard of it, and here he is, a a self-described naive doctor who doesn't think about limitations. He thinks about what is possible because he doesn't know any better, which is such a great great reminder uh, that sometimes fresh eyes um, can make the difference. So, uh, Dr. Harrison, you jump into this. You got the training you need. And then, of course, you don't operate on babies first. You're operating on uh, sheep and monkeys, right? Yeah, we had to devise a pathway to get to where we could try to help these babies. 
And that pathway was uh, difficult because we had to prove to the world that, uh, that it was safe and feasible. The only way to achieve that was to uh, make a model, uh, an animal model, that you could start and, and uh, that started out with sheep, fetal lambs, and I think we did about 1,500 fetal lamb operations. Uh, and then the final stage was to prove it in the most difficult animal model, that is the non-human primate, monkeys. And so we had to uh, devise that whole system and ended up doing, I think, five or 600 operations on fetal monkeys, all to get ready and to prove that it was safe and how to do it and de- develop all the techniques. That's Hmm. Was it hard to get approval for that? I mean, even to, and how how did you get funded to do that? Oh, that was that's always the problem, uh, and you just have to plug away at it. So we got grants, we had grants from the March of Times, the National Institute of Health, and yes, there were a lot of enemies um, of this enterprise, um, some from within the profession, and many from outside the profession. They thought it was like a sacrilege to, you know, uh, operate on the mother uh, just to do something for the, the mother, who's an innocent bystander, just to do something to help their feral uh, fetus. Yeah, I'm gonna, um, let me ask you that. That's intriguing to me that there would be opposition not today. I mean, it's mod, It's 2023. We don't think of that there would be great opposition to this, but... What what do you think was the motivation behind that opposition? Well, some of it, I hate to say it, but some of it's professional jealousy. Um, but some of it is uh, that, that people just didn't think it was right uh, to do something so radical to save a, a baby who was uh, in danger. That, that it, the baby wasn't worth it. It wasn't the wor- it wasn't worth it for the risk of the mother, so that's why we had to all the time we had to be on the mother's side and on the family's side, mm. and we would of course never do anything that was uh, that they didn't want. They had to be on our side, and it turned out in the big picture that the uh, the parents uh, and the families were our greatest allies. They were our greatest allies, and they were real heroes of this story because, as I say, the bomb had to undergo considerable risk to save her baby. Hmm. I mean, you're, what you're describing, of course, is, uh, uh, I mean, you have to possess not just the technical medical know-how. I mean, you're really, this is literally, you know, good uh, bedside manner of a doctor. I mean, you're selling this as much as you are performing the surgery, which is, Kind of remarkable. That that's exactly right, exactly right. But but also, you you have to, your heart has to be in the right place. That is, you know, it'd be easy to do a lot of these things uh, to uh, satisfy your own ego. But you had to, the the real trick was that you had to have the family's interest in mind. Not only the babies, who of course you were trying to save but the whole family. And so and there were many, many, many times that where we 
did not do something that we thought we should have because it wasn't right for the family. Hmm. So uh, let me ask you this. At the very beginning, when you're jumping into this with the animal surgery, how sure were you that it would work? Not at all, uh, because it was totally unproven. And, and, of course, many good colleagues said, you're crazy. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't operate for Are you crazy? Uh, so most, I'd say most of the opinions were against us. But I didn't care. <laughs> This is Dr. Michael Harrison. We've been talking with the first half of the show uh, all about his background, his upbringing. I mean, this is a pioneering surgeon, the father of fetal surgery. What an honor it is to talk with you. And um, if you'll hold on, when we jump into the second part of the show, I'd like to jump into the real juicy part, which is, of course, the tremendous success that you experienced in uh, leading the charge in saving babies' lives. Uh, I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Uh, Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening uh, to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Uh, We're now in the second part of the show. I've been talking with Dr. Michael Harrison. He is a pioneering surgeon, the father of fetal surgery. That is, he's operated, he pioneered the idea, the ability to operate on preborn babies, which is just a remarkable uh, feat that is uh, still being felt, of course. Doctors now do it. I wouldn't say it's routine, but it's become possible, and it's possible because of our guest today, Dr. Harrison, thanks for staying on. Oh, thank you. So let me let me jump to a significant day. I pulled an article up that just moved me. Uh, May tenth, nineteen eighty one. That day um, must mean something to you uh, regarding the Skinner family. Oh yeah, <laughs> Mike Skinner and his wonderful family. They uh, <coughs> he was the first. Uh, baby to survive fetal surgery, and and by the way, he's still a great guy, and he's in lives in Florida now. My God, he must be getting old. Uh, in his forties, right? Yeah, he's in his forties, and and his family named him after you. I guess so. <laughs> so, what do you remember about that family and that situation? Well, uh, they they were both wonderful. They they were. Uh, salt of the earth people. She, uh, he worked at the airport, uh, you know, doing baggage, and she, I forget what she did, but but she was a wonderful, soft, loving mother. And so, when we first uh, found out that they, oh, and and <laughs> Michael was one of twins. He had a twin sister. Uh, in the same pregnancy, obviously. and name name Mary, I think ultimately, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, and, and we were really early in this endeavor, and we're studying different kinds of problems that needed to be fixed before birth. One of which was what Michael had, which was an obstruction in the urinary tract. 
So the urine couldn't come out, and it backed up and ruined his kidneys. And and uh, because the urine makes up most of the amniotic fluid, and the amniotic fluid is necessary for the lungs to grow, the lungs didn't grow. So both his lungs and his kidneys were being uh, damaged by this ongoing obstruction in his penis. And we had figured out a way not to uh, fix the obstruction itself, which we later did. That was wonderful. But just to bypass it and let the urine come out of the obstructed system into the amniotic fluid, restore the amniotic fluid, and let the kidneys and lungs develop. And uh, that's exactly what would happen. That, uh, so um, it, it was, it was a, a bypass surgery. Um, and I think over the years we developed various ways to uh, unobstruct the urinary tract. But one of the first was with a little tube that we could insert um, uh, using under ultrasound guidance. That later became the Harrison fetal bladder shunt that is still used today. Hmm. It's pretty nice to have that named after you. Yeah, we invented it. <laughs> so you, you get in there. Uh, I'm curious, when, when a doctor is performing this type of high-stress, high-risk um, surgery, are, are you nervous? I mean, have you, you've, you've not done it a lot on babies, but it does do doctors get nervous? Absolutely. And, and I think it's good. It's a good kind of nervous. It's the kind of nervous that you'd have before playing a sports event or mm. rowing in a crew race. You're, you're nervous. Um, and you learn to control that and to use it. It actually helps you. Helps you think. Helps you uh, move faster. Yeah, it's good. Now, I'm a layman, and I don't understand a lot of medical terms, and I'm not expecting you to give us a, a high t- a lecture here about the procedure, but can you give a little description of what? It, how do you get into the womb of a preborn baby? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's what we spent years and years before this, before Michael Skinner, years and years studying that problem in fetal lambs and fetal monkeys. Um, and the upshot is... Uh, there are many ways to do it, but the only way we had at our disposal at the time uh, was good old-fashioned surgery. Cut and sew. Cut with a scalpel. You know, sew, sew things up. It, it was old-fashioned. Hmm. Uh, but it, when, when applied to the fetus, that meant you had to cut through the mom's belly, through the uterine wall. Now you're inside the uterus. And then you had to do the cutting and sewing on the fetus that would, uh, you know, repair the defect. And then, and then you had to close all that up again by sewing and uh, rather standard surgical techniques, but applied in a whole new way. Mm. And uh, we were actually surprised, as was the world, that it worked. Wow. Now, I understand that when you cut into a and do fetal surgery... You don't leave scars. Why is that? No, it's not that you don't leave scars. It's that that we learned by accident that that the fetus doesn't scar in the same way that that babies or adults do. It was one of the early chance observations 
that when we would uh, do something with the penis, where there should have been a surgical scar, you could barely see it. Um, and that led us to do tons of work, uh, again, mostly with animals, on the, the idea of uh, uh, fetal wound healing, that it was different than adults. And indeed, it is different, and it's better. Hmm. And, and why is that? Is that? Is there an easy explanation to that? <laughs> There's not. But uh, many of our wonderful uh, surgical research fellows uh, studied this uh, like mad at a, at a very uh, basic level, biochemistry and, and all that stuff. And uh, the, 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 I guess the simple answer is that when the fetus heals, it's more like uh, regeneration. I mean, after all, we had to all uh, develop mm-hmm. uh, as fetuses in a system in which our bodies would totally regenerate. One way to think about it is that, that uh, you can you can see it in some animal systems, like cutting off a lizard's tail, where he grows his tail back. Yeah, that's regeneration of the tail. I see. Okay, and another intrigue that I read that I thought I'd ask you about is. You obviously don't always you don't take the whole baby out of the womb, and you can't right because the umbilical cord can't be exposed to air. Is that right? Yes, there were many tricks uh, involved in uh, manipulating a fetus within the uterus, um, and the upshot is that now if we skip all the way ahead to now, most fetal interventions are done um, minimally invasively. That is with uh, telescopes and, and uh, like, uh, uh, and, you know, and without actually cutting and taking the baby out. Um, and, and we developed all those techniques. And, of course, there were lots of tricks, like how to handle the amniotic fluid, uh, which the baby has to have, and how to replenish it and all that. Mm. So many, many, many uh, uh, tricks and surgical techniques uh, had to be developed first in animals and then applied in humans. Uh, but uh, fortunately, it all worked out because now there's lots of fetal interventions done by very good people around the world, uh, and mostly without uh, real surgery. Hmm. We're, we're talking with Dr. Michael Harrison. He's the father of fetal surgery. Um, Dr. Harrison, when you first saw a baby in the womb uh, operate. I mean, what does that do for your wonder of life? It's, it was totally, uh, just what you said, it's totally wonderful. And one of the, you know, you never really see a whole fetus. Um, so you see parts, either, no matter how you expose it, whether it's minimally invasively or with open surgery. And one of the most striking things to me that I'll never forget is the view of the fetal hand, because you would make a decision to use, and often the hand would come out. It was this incredibly tiny, delicate, beautiful hand. Mm. Uh, and I don't know, I just will never ever get over that. Yeah, there was a controversial photograph that was on the cover of newspapers and magazines of a, of a baby grabbing the uh, uh, instrument. And or, or I think grabbing my finger. That was your finger. Yeah. Wow. And you were you were in that uh, surgery to correct spina bifida. Is that right? Yes. 
So that was a later development. That was like years after those first uh, uh, surgeries to fix urinary tract obstruction and diaphragmatic hernia and a couple of other things. Because, uh, and it was quite a a leap of faith. Uh, The reason is that we had said to ourselves that we would only uh, attempt to fix a problem if the baby's life was left. If it was a life-threatening injury, and, and most and all the things we did were life-threatening. The spina bifida was different. It was the first lesion uh, we and others went after that wasn't really life-threatening. I uh, viewed it as being life-wrecking. It, you know, it's a devastating problem um, to be born with a myelomeningocele. <clears throat> you paralyze your whole life and... It's just awful. So that was the first one that we did that was not truly life-threatening. Those babies live. Mm. And if I remember, I read that there was a $22 million study done to confirm that your surgery, maybe not your personal surgery, but fetal surgery for spina bifida was highly effective and worth yeah. it. And, I, and of course, it, the results were affirmative, but I'm curious how surprised were you? Were you surprised at all? That the study not came out? No, not at all? Not at all, because we had, had done the first, very first studies on fixing spina bifida in fetal lambs. Uh, a, a wonderful surgeon uh, from Switzerland had come and was working in our lab as a, a fetal uh, research fellow, of which we had many wonderful ones, uh, and, and did those first studies where he made spina bifida in fetal lambs and then showed by fixing it that you could uh, uh, keep the lamb from being paralyzed at birth. And then that he went on, and many others, uh, and did beautiful work uh, introducing that into humans and, and showing that it would work. Mm. That must have been just so satisfying to, to confirm what you had seen. Um, you must interact, or you must, over the years, hear from a lot of patients. I mean, is that the most satisfying part of this? It is the best. It's, it's even true now. So every week or every month or something, I get a note from somebody I've never heard of. And they said, oh, I'm so-and-so, and uh, you operated on me and my baby, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Mm. And, and now my baby's grown up and is, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> something wow. or other. And, and, and they're <laughs> thanking me. It is the best reward. And do they sometimes come and see you? They do, but uh, most of them, even in the early days, were not from uh, San Francisco where I was doing all this work. They were from all over the country or even even all over the world. So so if they're in the area, yes, most of them were. And do do doctors keep track of how many surgeries they do? Number of patients they see is that? I mean, ball players you know, keep stats it, for everything. That's a good question, and I and the answer is I don't know. I mean, I, you're just working away, you're busy, and they just keep coming, and you keep doing them, and then all of a sudden, years later, like now, you look back and say, "Hey, I wonder how yeah. many of those I did," and you don't know. Now you're obviously not a one-man band. I, I had seen at least early on your 
your fetal treatment program that you kind of pioneered was led by, you had some colleagues, Dr. Roy Filley and Dr. Mitchell Golbus. Am I pronouncing that yeah. right? Yeah, no, that's good. What can you tell yeah. us about those guys? I mean, you must be, you must, if you still are close to them, I mean, you were, uh, that's a, quite a team. Yeah. And well, it, it developed in the way more than that. <clears throat> Mitch Goldbus was a very good <clears throat> obstetrical doctor. We knew when we started this enterprise to do it clinically, <clears throat> we would have to have very good allies in. <clears throat> Obstetrics, of course, because that was their field. That was one of the problems is, is you know, people thought, oh, what the hell is a surgeon doing? I'm, you know, fiddling with a pregnant woman. So he was the first advocate on our side and an ally. And, of course, we eventually had many allies in obstetrics. But the other field, that was just being invented, essentially, was the field of ultrasound imaging. It was just coming under under its own. Mm. And Roy Philly was the master uh, practitioner of that. Mm. And so so he was one of the first to develop all the techniques that allowed you to see the fetus before birth and to find these problems. Remember that most of them were unknown until the baby popped out, and then it was too late. So the, uh, a crucial piece of the enterprise was to be able to figure out which babies were threatened before birth, and that's where ultrasound came along and was uh, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that's now, of course, so standard. Everybody knows they love to get yeah. their ultrasound images, yeah. and, of course, now the 3D, 4D images are just remarkable. Did you have yeah. access to that advanced technology before the public saw? I mean, the, the you know the images now that we see are the is it 3D or 4D? Yeah, it, it's like no, we didn't. No, we did not have uh, have that. But Roy Philly and his colleagues at, at UCSF were leaders in developing all that technology. So we saw it as it came along. There was no 3D at the time. It was only 2D imaging, and it wasn't very good. It mm. wasn't very precise. It wasn't very clear. So many of the advances uh, were overseen and uh, pioneered by Roy Philly and his colleagues. What would you rather be, doctor? A, a, a doctor coming up now with all the advances in the technology, or did you enjoy the pioneering aspect of what you did? I loved what we did. Loved because every every day was a, a new adventure, a new problem to solve, a new technique to develop. There was just so much new stuff. I don't know about doing it now. Uh, the field's advanced so much that it's it's almost like it's uh, there's mm. <laughs> not so many challenges. Yeah. How did you avoid? I mean, you you obviously had to navigate the ethical considerations, and there were many of them, um, and you seem to navigate that very well by putting the, you know, concentration on the baby, on the on the mom. Um, did you, were there some tough moments in the midst of your career? Uh, for sure, and and of course the, the biggest one was 
uh, the issue of abortion. And fundamentally, we, we just stayed out of that argument. We were always the uh, advocates for the mother and the family. Uh, and, you know, many of the things that were found early on were not fixable, even by us. Uh, and and that we had to support the family if they wanted to terminate the pregnancy. Well, many people thought that was terrible and still do. <laughs> but we just always took the side of the family. Hmm. Yeah, that's a difficult... And I think that kept us out of a lot of trouble. We could have easily gone down... I mean, you're dealing with patients who have multiple children and and uh, in womb, right? Uh, and I would imagine with the advent of IVF th- throughout your career, you dealt with a lot of, not a lot, but I guess probably an increasing number of moms who are carrying multiple children. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And then try... And, you know, one of the things we learned early on was that, you know, despite Michael Skinner and his sister Mary... Uh, that we probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, we shouldn't have done it on the general principle that we shouldn't endanger a normal sibling, Mary, uh, by trying to save uh, Michael. Um, it, 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 it's a d- difficult ethical issue, as were many of the ones we faced. But uh, I think the the upshot is you just have to be as honest as you can with yourself. Do the best you can at the time. And at the time, the best we could do was to save Michael, and we did. And, it didn't, and, it, and the sister did. Um, but we probably wouldn't do that today. Hmm. Well, I'm, I was going to say, I'm sure Michael and Mary are not at all um, sorry that you you, no. you did that, and, <laughs> and their parents, of course. Um, you're... Um, where was I going with this? Um, your greatest contribution, obviously, has to be the pioneering of this. You see it um, unfold throughout the you know the whole industry now. Um, you still keep up on it. Do you still read journal articles about it? Do you lecture about it? No, I, I, I did. Uh, I don't know. I'm getting to be an old dude. Um, so yeah, no, I, I followed it very closely for a long time. And still love to learn about it. How it's, it's moved way beyond the stuff that we did. Now the real frontier is uh, very exciting. It's it's doing um, uh, essentially biochemical medical type maneuvers for the fetus, like stem cell transplantation and even gene therapy. Those are, that's the real frontier now. And, of course, that is way beyond my expertise. Do you worry at all about where this could go from an ethical no. standpoint? No. Not, well, I, I, I mean, you could easily make up scenarios where it would be perfectly awful. Um, but I'm not worried about it because uh, I've grown up with the people who do it uh, uh, here at UCSF and around the world. Uh, and they're just good people, and they won't let it go bad. Mm. It could easily go bad if it if it was, you know, if it didn't have good people doing it. Yeah, well, but, someone with your background and with that type of confidence, that should give us some confidence, too. Uh, I how, think so. how significant was the designation of the 
preborn baby as a patient. That that you know your book or your textbook is kind of entitled that. That sort of a was a groundbreaking thing, was it not? It, it was totally uh, novel, uh, and and I think it was totally the right thing to do because people just never never thought of a fetus as being a patient. I mean, it just had not occurred to anybody. So so I very deliberately began referring to our this enterprise as you know as looking after the the patient the fetus as a patient. Did you get any pushback from that from anybody? Yeah, lots. <laughs> Initially, because, uh, again, when, when we started, you know, the fetus was just a mystery. No one had ever seen a human living fetus. It, it was just a mystery until the baby popped out, and then everybody said, oh, wow, look at, uh, we got to do something for this baby. But no one ever considered the the fetus inside the mom as being an actual patient. Hmm. Well, you've been listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We've been hearing from Dr. Michael Harrison. He's the father of fetal surgery. And um, I love, doctor, that you want to be remembered first and foremost as a good dad. That that tells me your priorities are straight. And I know there are countless uh, families and children, uh, now adults, who are grateful for you and uh, there's so many takeaways from this program. You've dropped wisdom here throughout our conversation. I love early on when you talked about hanging around smart people and taking on hard, competitive, difficult things. And um, you you made it, and you did it. And uh, thank you for, on behalf of uh, all those families, we appreciate what you've done, and thanks for sharing some of your story with us today. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.